This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. I know this is a big deal. Um, you got, the Sands & Associates has done a great deal of work mm-hmm. and research on this. And, and you've released a survey mm-hmm. uh, that's, uh, that you've sent out and that it is accessible for everybody. Um, and there's some pretty alarming things to know about debt and the particular sort of group or age group that uh, you're most concerned about right now. Yeah. So, the, Elena, we're so proud of, of this piece of work that we've, we've just issued a, a press release um, on January 28th of, of 2019 here. It's our sixth annual consumer debt study. And what's great about this is our scale as the largest licensed insolvency firm in BC. Uh, we've got the ability to survey our clients and get a really representative look about what are people in BC facing um, in terms of their debts. You know, what drives them into debt? What are the types of behaviors? How do they feel about that situation? What remedies do they use to deal with their debt? And then how are they again in the future? So we released this survey. Um, I've been on the media the last couple of days, radio, TV. I'm speaking about some of the insights. So I'm really thrilled we can give some of the, the background on the survey in today's segment as well. You know, and I think the number one most important thing or beneficial thing about this kind of information is that folks who haven't, who are reading it for the first time, this might be their little glimmer of hope mm-hmm. knowing that they're not alone. That's exactly it. You know, the number of people who come in and then they, as soon as we talk and I tell them, you know, there's 100,000 people in Canada last year that did a bankruptcy or a proposal and their their job, you know, falls to the floor. They believe they're the only person that's suffering, the only person that's been overextended. Because it feels like that. It does, yeah. yeah it can feels be. like that. Yeah. Okay, so what did you, what did you, let's talk about the parameters. So it's the... Um, it's the sixth annual, you mm-hmm. said that, yep. and you talked to 1,600 British Columbians. Yeah, exactly. So we, we sent it out to about 6,000 of our past clients, and we had about almost 1,700 um, completed surveys. So a pretty strong response, that over 25%, which told me, you know, people are willing to share their stories, share their insights. And we had a number of people actually come forward to be full case studies in the report. So I've got four uh, full-page write-ups of individuals talking about their situation. Oh, cool. So it was something that people wanted to talk about. Great. Now, I think one of the key insights that we got from the survey here was a really alarming red flag um, that's a bit of an emerging issue in the age group of 18 to 39, which we've talked about as kind of the millennial um, generation. So it's kind of a wide range, but it's people that came of age, you know, right around the, the turn of the new century. And the trend is that this demographic is seeing a lot of societal pressure to fit in, including spending on things to impress others and including spending on events to impress others. And when we compared that to other demographics, it was three times as high um, the pressure people felt in the millennial demographic, you know, just to fit in, just to keep up with individuals. And, you know, if, as I think about it, I'm like, that's got to be social media, right? It, it's got to be trying to live an online life, seeing, a, you know, this conception of, of, you know, what I should be doing, what I should be having at a certain point in my life. And millennials especially feel a lot of that pressure to fit in. 
Interesting, uh, because often you think millennials, or at least sometimes I've heard that, you know, that they don't care about stuff. They don't care mm-hmm. about this and they don't care about that. But this sort of counters that attitude that they care a great deal to the point that they're putting themselves in in uh, precarious situations financially mm-hmm. as a result of caring so much. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, to your point, Elaine, there might be a, a great cohort of millennials who are not focused on what sure. other people think and so on and so forth. And thank God those folks haven't been my clients. Right. Um, but a lot of folks who have been my clients, you know, they have self-identified as saying that, yeah, there's been a lot of pressure, a lot of financial pressure, and that's kind of put me behind. Sure. What we thought was also really concerning about this demographic too, the 18 to 39, um, is they knew they had debt issues. And, you know, a lot of folks, when they have debt issues, um, you know, they're not sure where to turn. And in the entire survey, it was about 20% of people said, you know, I delayed getting help from my debt because I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to turn. I didn't know what help was available. So it was 20% in the general population. It was more than double that in the millennial cohort. So it was over 40% of people knew they had a problem and they just didn't know what to do about it. They struggled. They felt stressed out. And sometimes that extended for up to two years. Wow. And that tells me that they were unwilling to ask for help or insight from anybody, whether it be family members or family or parents or each other, right? Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. Yeah, and I'm sure, you know, part of it, there's there's a fear of being judged, and that's, you know, at, at all demographics, but um, it was just really striking that it was such a significant divergence between, you know, f- over 40% of millennials not knowing that there is help available and where to go and find that help and if maybe they find that, themselves in debt. Sorry, maybe mm-hmm. that non-traditional media too, right? That that, that that exists for them. They're not doing the, regu- you know, the stuff mm. that we've all been doing right. uh, for a long time. So, yeah, interesting. And that's, yeah, information for you guys for sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, we also found some really good insights about how behavior changed. So before going through a bankruptcy or a proposal, you know, how are people behaving and using credit? Um, and then after, you know, did it have the desired effect that people's credit habits are a lot better? And the answer is yes, <laughs> it, it did have the desired effect. Um, so a couple of statistics here. So before people had dealt with their debt, either through filing a bankruptcy or a proposal, almost half, so about 49% of respondents said they used credit for necessary expenses that they didn't have enough income to cover. Hmm. So this is on that monthly basis. You're getting a cash advance for your rent or you're putting the groceries on credit card. Your regular expenses, almost half of people were using credit on a cash flow basis. Um, And more than a majority, 54% of people said they used credit for purchases when they didn't have enough cash. So they knew it wasn't a case of just convenience and it wasn't just everyday expenses. It was purchases where, hey, I know I can't pay this off, but I'm, I'm using credit anyway. So, right. so not a good behavior. Wow. Um, now, after someone going through a bankruptcy or a proposal, one of the most rewarding parts of my job is counseling, where we can talk to people about their behaviors, give them good tools, techniques for you know shopping and, and being responsible and things like that. Um, so after dealing with the with their debts, um, almost half of people, so 48% this time, said they never used credit if they can avoid it. And that's hmm. that's awesome, right? I have a lot of folks coming in, they say, you know what, I got myself into trouble and in the future, I'm going to live without credit. Um, and not to say everybody has to live without credit, but it can be a very good best practice if you're able to live on a cash cash flow basis, have a little bit of savings each month, and about half of people after they had dealt with their debt were able to do that. Um, It was only about 9% of individuals, so still more than I would like, but just 9% as opposed to over 50 that were still using credit for some of their regular expenses. Interesting. So, what kind of debt did did was there a, was there a parameters for the kind of debt these folks had? You know, for the most part, it's your standard credit card, lines of credit, um, some student loans, and income taxes. Okay. Um, but a lot of the time, it's just you know 
consumption of life. So over a period of time, a few hundred dollars extra per month adds up. So especially in the younger demographics, the amount of total debt they were dealing with was typically in the range of twenty-five to forty-nine thousand dollars, which is a lot. It's, it is. It's a ton, right? Oh man! So imagine that again—a twenty percent interest, even on the low end. Your interest costs alone are four or five hundred bucks a month there, yeah. and that's just to get you to tread water. Uh, and definitely, the debt amounts trended upwards as you know people were older in age. So senior citizens actually had the highest amount of debt, um, and that's you know rather concerning because typically their income is quite low. But it speaks cynically to the point that they had a lot more time, <laughs> to, you know, to accumulate debt over time. That's true. So typically, my older clients tend to have a little bit of higher debt before they come in. Interesting. And what gets them into these uh, into this situation? It's a lot of things that you would have thought. So for most people, it's, you know, life is going great and then there's a shock to the system. And I found it so fascinating, the shutdown of the U.S. government, because these were all very good middle-class jobs, you know, oh, government yeah. job, you can depend on the paycheck. And you would think people would be able to save, to save money and be able to, you know, go without a paycheck or two. And it really showed how perched on the knife edge just about everybody seems to be that after one or two missed paychecks, people are rationing their necessary medications. They're, you know, at risk of having their high cut off or being kicked out of their apartment. So a lot of people are operating without any safety net. If there's any shock to the system, they just can't withstand it. Yeah. So within our survey, uh, you know, the number one cause was overextension of credit and financial mismanagement. So this was about 27% of people said, you know what, I just got too much credit. I didn't manage it appropriately. Um, and basically it's, it's all my fault, uh, which I tend to try to dig more deeply on that. And as we look at some of the other causes, they are all triggering events. So oftentimes overextension of credit is combined with a job loss. That was about 16% of people. So, you know, even if you have EI, it's not going to be at your full wage and who knows how long a job loss is going to persist. Right. Um, the next most prevalent cause at about 12% was illness, injury, or health-related problems. So even though socialized medicine in Canada, we don't pay to go to the doctor, um, still, if you need specific therapy, specific drugs, some things aren't covered. Exactly. Um, as well as your time off from work, you yeah. know, who replaces all of that income. Even with disability benefits, they're usually not your full amount. Um, so illness of either yourself or a close family member can be something that can tip somebody into insolvency. Yeah, or depending uh, on the injury, how you got it, mm-hmm. how it's impacting yeah. your work, right? Yeah, is it a work injury or not? That and makes the, a big difference. Yeah, that can speak to whether you're compensated appropriately. Um, and the last one is something we, we see quite a bit. It's marital or relationship breakdown. Um, so suddenly you've been living as you've been living as two people and suddenly uh, you both have to reestablish yourselves. You've got to divide some family debt, some family assets. Sometimes there's lawyers involved, which are never cheap if you're if you're splitting up and having to use lawyers. Um, so definitely that's one of the prevalent causes. So most people, again, they said they overextended themselves and they said it was all their fault. But I tend to look a little bit more deeply and say usually there's some triggering event. You know, we didn't follow, follow it up in the survey here, but there's sometimes some gambling addictions. Sometimes mm-hmm. there's shopping addictions. There can be some pathologies where, you know, debt is just one part of a series of challenges that the person is facing. Yeah. I mean, in terms of what's available, everything is available. I mean, there's very little that you can't get today mm-hmm. anywhere, right? Yep. So that would add to it. Now, what kind of warning signs did you, were you able to sort of delve into that a little bit in terms of the debt warning signs that folks or that you were able to see as a mm-hmm. result of talking to them? Yeah. And, you know, the, the report runs to 20 pages plus. It's available on our website. I encourage people, I hope they, they can go in and read some of it. Um, but yeah, definitely the most common warning signs. The first one was overwhelming stress. So if you're feeling really stressed about your debt, probably there's a reason for that. There's something that's driving you. And it was a vast 
vast majority of people said that they worried about their debts constantly. It did not get out of their head. They knew they had this debt. They didn't know what they were going to do to pay it. They tried to think through all these different scenarios, but the overwhelming stress was what they felt. Yeah. Um, the second one, and I was encouraged to see this because to me it is a warning sign, is if you're only making minimum payments. So when I hear people saying, and sometimes overhear conversations, oh, I'm fine, I always pay the minimum or I pay a little bit more than the minimum, all I can say is you're on the hamster wheel at that point, yes. right? Minimum payments, we say often, you know, $6,000 a debt is the 40-year plan on minimum payments. So I like that people are self-identifying if they see they're only making minimum payments that they're not getting ahead. Um, you know, the final two were accumulating more debt. So if they see that at the end of each month, that total debt balance is going up rather than down, um, that's a bad sign. Um, and then finally, collection calls, which I might have thought would have been up near the top, but no, typically people really self-identify. They know the warning signs a lot more quickly than being delinquent and having a collection agent call them. That's really good. So again, um, you can get, uh, if you want to go into this study a, a bit deeper, uh, as um, Blair mentioned, www.sands-trustee.com uh, forward slash how we help debt study. Mm-hmm. So that'll get you there. Um, and the there's interviews and all that. That And and can I access that stuff oh, yeah. easily? Yeah, yeah. There's the, the full write-ups of the four clients who were profiled, as well as there's some videos as well. Great. Now, if you think that you don't need to read the read the survey because you already know you're in trouble, this is what you need to do. Uh, it's nice and easy. Check out the website, sans-trustee.com. They've got a lot of questions and answers for you on, on next steps. Or give them a call at 1-800-661-3030 for that free consultation, as well as to find an office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Now, we don't often talk about business owners. We're usually talking about individuals, Mm -hmm. people who run into debt and then have to figure out how to deal with it. Um, But I thought this was a really good, good topic. So there are mistakes that business owners should avoid making. Mm -hmm. And you think, I think automatically, anybody who's running their own business, pretty smart. They must be doing a great job. But that's not always the case. There's things that they forget. Yeah, definitely there, there is. And, you know, I really wish there was some crash course the government required everyone to go through before you can suddenly become self-employed so that people understand the requirements because I have so many folks who come in to see me and they just weren't aware. You know, they've got to remit GST, for example, or they've mm. got to register this or that trademark or, the, you know, there's a bunch of hoops they have to jump through. That, hey, they're like, why didn't anybody tell me? Like, well, I don't know. I wish there was some, you know, a better crash sure. course, so to speak, of being self-employed. Um, but I think usually where people get a lot of advice is when they're setting up a business, they want to minimize their personal liability. So, you know, quite often they'll incorporate, they'll create a corporation, you know, even if they're a tradesperson or a realtor, you know, just a kind of a one man or woman operation, um, they incorporate to create some legal separation, to have a separate entity that is the business so that it's not themselves. Yeah. But then sometimes the actions that they take, it really frustrates that separation between the business. And we'll talk about that a little bit, but they end up incurring personal liability. And if something happens to the business, even though they thought they'd set it up the right way, they can still have some personal hangovers or personal debt effects that can be a big issue for them to 
deal with. Wow, that's really important information. Mm-hmm. Okay, so first thing you say, procrastinate. Yeah, so this is a big mistake that I see people make is, you know, obviously just putting off what you know you should do to another day. So sometimes this comes into, you know, really procrastinating on some of the big business decisions of really understanding, is your business still viable or not? Um, a lot of people, when they come in to see me, I ask them, you know, can I see a business plan? Can I see your next cash flow statement? And they, they haven't put that together. They've been procrastinating on doing that. Um, but what they have been doing is they've just been trying to sell more, to deliver more, to, you know, sure. to try to make up things on volume, but they procrastinated really looking at the business from a hard perspective and really understanding, are there some difficult decisions that need to be made? Almost every entrepreneur that I've met with, they would say they held on too long. You know, They kept their staff on for too long. They kept their contracts on for too long. Um, they injected too much money for too long. They just procrastinated towards a difficult decision. Got it. Uh, and that sort of goes into the next one, that there wasn't really good planning mm-hmm. or they didn't plan everything. Yeah, and uh, most people, when they start off a business, they put together a business plan, um, but then the business plan often sits on the shelf and they don't manage towards it. They don't check it. So um, I once worked with a great business mentor and he said the way that he would assess an entrepreneur is say, don't show me your business plan today. Show me your business plan for three years ago and show me how you've tracked towards it. That means that it's real, right? So all the planning that you've done, if you're not, you know, doing budget to actual every month, understanding your variances, if you're not really operating with a cash flow forecast, um, you're driving blind. You know, you've got just so little uh, visibility ahead of you that something coming down the road, you might not see it until it's too late. Fair enough. So I see a lot of, you know, energy put into the operations of the business, but sometimes you need to get yourself out of the operations and actually go a level up and plan what's the next one, two, five years looking like and do we have a viable path or are we trending in a direction where some hard decisions now are going to help us in avoiding a lot of pain later on. Got it. And I guess borrowing more too because uh, credit it's pretty easy if you've got a thing if you've got Mm -hmm. an entity the banks are going to go out of their way to loan you money because Mm -hmm. they're going to make money yeah. at the end of the day. In many cases, that, right? that's I mean, the that's case. I mean, that's got to yeah. be their motivation. Yeah, sometimes as an entrepreneur, it can be very difficult to get any financing from banks unless you've got some assets to pledge. Sure. But if you do have assets to pledge, then yes, you're right. They will definitely advance okay. you probably more more money than you need as long as they, they feel secured about it. Fair enough. But the thing to keep in mind here is, you know, there's the old adage, if you find yourself into a hole, what's the first thing that you do is you stop digging. So I see a lot of individuals where they knew the business was in debt and they just kept incurring more debt, you know, to keep up on minimum payments or to try something new or so on and so forth. So the first thing to do to stop a money problem is you've got to stop the borrowing. So one of the big pitfalls that I see is people just view, okay, if I can just get another injection of financing, another from family and friends or sell off another personal asset to invest, that's going to get me through this next milestone. But they don't realize that, you know, the next milestone coming after then is going to require more cash and all they're doing is just bleeding their personal resources. Right. And that's when that's that for the next one then mm-hmm. is putting their own personal resources into the hole. Yeah. In this case. And, and that can be heartbreaking, right? Sure. Because quite often it's a business that the person's, you know, developed over a period of months or years at, at least, and they feel a lot of sense of identity, a sense of self-worth in it. Well, yeah. Yeah. It, it's like a baby, that it's right? it's not going well, right? Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it's just, oh, I know next year is going to be better. And when you look back at the last two or three years, they've all been similar, but it's just this eternal optimism. And usually to be an entrepreneur, you've got to have a pretty thick skin. You've got to be able to take all the arrows that are coming at you and bounce them off and 
move forward and really get through adversity, um, but you've got to also be realistic. And if it's to the point where you are injecting personal resources into it, if you're taking money from your home equity line to invest into the business, you've got to understand that that money might not get paid back because as soon as it goes into the business, it's on par with all the other creditors and you can't necessarily drag that money out easily. Right. Yeah. I was just going to say that, you know, the shows where they, where, where you as an entrepreneur are in front of a bunch of people who have mm-hmm. a lot of money that want to invest. And there's some very key questions they always ask everybody right off the bat. Yeah. And if you don't have those right answers within the first minute or so, they just go, yeah, not interested because, mm-hmm. you know, you couldn't, you're, you over-evaluated your company. Yeah, or, the valuation is always key, right? Really key. Yeah. And making money is not easy. No. Like in, in any context, any circumstance, it's much easier to have a business fail than it is to have it succeed. So there's a number of ways where things can go wrong all the time. And it's really hard to step aside. And sometimes getting an independent view can help. You know, if there's an accountant or a financial advisor or someone that you trust, you know, show them the book, show them the business plan, you know, what's their opinion on how the business is going. Um, but your business plan can't be based on, you know, just estimates and assumptions and, you know, views of the future that are completely different from the past. Got it. Delaying payments to Canada Revenue. Yeah, this Never one, a good idea, folks. This one comes last, but it's definitely the most important one. It's where I see people really have the worst experience is that as soon as you're starting to use Canada Revenue Agency's funds in your business, um, you've essentially rung the death bell, so to speak. So the government says if you are starting to use GST funds, for example, so if you sell something and you retain uh, GST, you're supposed to remit that to the government. It's money you hold in trust. Right Now, a lot of entrepreneurs, if they're short on cash, they start to use those GST funds in their operations. And the government says the day you start to do that is the day you should be closing your doors and be out of business to the point that if any GST funds aren't recovered from the business, you are personally liable for them. So you as an individual might think you've set up this incorporated business. It's great. I've got a short-term cash flow issue. I'm just going to use some GST funds and hopefully they'll be there in the future. If you can't keep the government whole on GST, dollar for dollar, that money has to come personally from the director of the corporation. And that's when you talked about when we first started this segment, that that uh, that uh, that gray area where mm-hmm. you're starting to cross over between personal exactly. and company, or you call it frustrate that division. And yeah. that's, that's a good por- place where that happens. Yeah. Two other big ways that happens. So GST is a big one. Another yeah. is with employee source deductions. Mm-hmm. So when you pay your employees, you have to withhold their taxes, CPPEI. Yes. That money has to go to Canada Revenue Agency. And if it doesn't, same thing, you're using government trust funds in your accounts, um, not allowed to do so. And personally, you would be held 100% liable for it. Excellent. Or not excellent, but I understand. It's what good. You're it's good to know, right? Yeah, so, good to know. So if you're at the point I can make payroll, but I can't remit to the government, you need to be shutting down the operation at that point and understanding all you're doing is now putting yourself personally more at risk. And it's and that's kind of the overall thought too, right? Like if you're having to take these actions, you're in trouble, and it's about just sort of facing that fact mm-hmm. that you need to take more action than this kind of band aid band-aid on the side of the boat where it's leaking. Yeah. And, you know, there could be a great outcome here. You know, there could be a startup, a new business, a proprietorship, you restructure the debts of the old corporation. There can be a great future, but sometimes it's with a different vehicle, not the same incorporated business. If you're hearing this information for the first time and you're thinking, yikes, I need to do something about it. Here's here's a good place to start. Go to the website, sands-trustee.com. Loads of good information for you to take the next step. That next step might be calling one 800 661 
888-900-3030 to get that consultation, that first free consultation to see if this is a situation you need some assistance from a licensed insolvency trustee, as well as to find an office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. And for information on any of the services we talk about on the show, go to sands-trustee.com or call 1-800-661-3030 for that free consultation to find an office near you. So we're going to talk about some resources, which I think is always a really important thing to give people. Mm -hmm. Uh, It helps them figure things out, and if they can't, then they still know where to go for more answers. And these are four debt help resources that everybody should know about. Yeah, and I think it's everybody should know, but most people don't know. And that's what I I love so much about this show and about my my day-to-day job is quite often I'm giving people information that they look at me like, well, why didn't anybody else tell me this? And why don't I know about this? And this can really help me. Um, So for today, yeah, we're going to talk about four things that you probably aren't aware of all of them or even some of them. uh, But in certain situations and certain, um, you know, times in a person's life, these can be pretty important to help you through a tough time. Really important, especially the first one. There's actually a statute of limitations on your debt. Now, I'm sure there's lots of criteria that that we're going to talk about, but Mm -hmm. that's interesting in and of itself. Yeah, and and let's talk about, you know, what is a statute of limitations? You know, most people understand a statute of limitations means that if something happens, there's a set period of time where you've got to take some action or you you lose the right to ever take that action. So if you think about, um, you know, some basic crimes, you know, there might be a statute of limitation of 10 years. If no one brings forth there was this crime committed, um, you know, within 10 years, you can't bring it forth after that. Exactly. Now, with debt, it's actually the same thing thing, but the statute of limitations is quite short, and most people are stunned to know the statute of limitations for debt in BC is two years. That's amazing. Not a long time, so right? So in, in, really, in really simple terms, that means that if I owe someone... Mm-hmm. Or and this would be an institution mm-hmm. like a, a big entity. Yeah, anybody not except for the government. Yeah. Anybody except for the government, essentially. Yeah, right. Um, that you, let's say you're the person I owe, mm-hmm. or you're the group I owe. You have two years to make it known that I owe that money. Essentially, yeah. I've got two years where I can force you to pay. And by force, that means I can take you to court and then the court will give me an order where I can take your assets or take your wages. That's really the only way that people are ever forced to pay their debts is if they're sued in a court of law. And you being the creditor, the person that's owed that money, you have to bring that lawsuit within two years of the person's last payment or written acknowledgement of the debt. If you try to bring that lawsuit and it's been three years or five years or seven years or people call me all the time with these really old debts that are just harassing them and threatening to sue them and I say well you know what call their bluff say okay go ahead and sue me and as long as you haven't paid that debt within two years your defense will be one line and you'll win every single time it's this is statute barred because it's beyond the two-year statute of limitations now you now there is a piece though let's say I react or let's say I start to pay that debt Uh 
that's when that that statute's negated is what I'm thinking. That's what you have to be really careful about. So, um, you know, if the debt's already past the two-year statute of limitations, nothing you do can reset that as long as there's been that two-year gap. Um, But let's say it's been, you know, 18 months or 22 months or something like that since you've last paid and you're not aware that you're coming close to this two-year period, you can bet the collection agency and the banks, they are aware. And oftentimes the last couple months there, they'll be incredibly nice to you and they'll say, you know what, we're all good people here. Why don't you just make me a $5 payment or a $10 payment? Okay. Some good faith payment where you really think, oh, okay, they're, they're working with me here. They want me to get out of this too. Okay, well, of course I'll come to the table. I'm an honest person. I borrowed this money. And what you've done then for the 5 or $10 payment is you've reset that statute of limitations and you've given them another two years where they can hold hold essentially a sword of Damocles over your head right. and then decide that they're either going to sue you or not, but they, you reset that two-year clock. Okay. What if I just acknowledge, not give you anything, not mm-hmm. pay any money, but just yep. acknowledge, yes, you're right, I do owe that money. Does that change it? Well, it depends. Now, the law says if it's a written acknowledgement, then yes, that does reset the statute of limitations. So if you're sent something, hey, can you please affirm this debt? Um, First off, I'd be saying, well, why would you ever sign something like that? What's the benefit to you? But yeah, if you were to sign something that says, yeah, I affirm that I owe this money, that also resets the statute of limitations. Okay. Is there anything else that you want to make sure that we know about on the the statute? Well, I guess a couple things that just aren't included here. So it's pretty all-encompassing, but as we talk about very briefly, government debt is not a part of this. So if you owe the government money for income taxes, GST, student loans, whatever it may be, there's no statute of limitations. They're going to be able to take future tax returns. They don't even have to take you to court to force you to pay. So this is not a strategy that can work for government debt. Also, uh, a couple other things, if you've already been sued, so if someone within that two-year period has taken you to court and they've gotten an order against you, well, that order is not subject to the two-year statute. They've already been to court and they've gotten their victory at that point, but that's pretty rare. Very few, few people ever get sued. And the last thing, and this just speaks to common sense, you know, as in with a bankruptcy, if you had child support obligations or things like that and you didn't pay them, you can't get out of that in a bankruptcy. Same thing with the statute of limitations. There's no nothing for child support, alimony, those debts aren't subject to statute. Okay, fair enough. Mm -hmm. All right, number two, request for communication in writing only. And we've talked about this before, and Mm -hmm. I love this one. So explain it. Yeah, so this means, you know, essentially if a collection agency is calling you, it's usually not a good time in your life. You know, a collection agency gets involved after you've been at least 90 days delinquent on your payments. Um, You've probably got a lot of things going on. And generally, most people, if they could have paid the debt, they would have paid it already before the collection agency got involved. So what can be really tough is you getting phone calls, sometimes from 7 a.m until 9 p.m. at night, sometimes 15, 20 calls a day. And while some collection agents are very nice and you know good to deal with, they've got a job to do and others really specialize in fear, intimidation and all of those things. So the point of what we're telling you here today is you don't have to consent to those phone calls. There's a form called the Request for Communication in Writing Only that the province of BC puts out in a standard format. And by sending that form to anybody who's calling you about your debt, they can no longer call you. Period. It's that simple. That simple. You just and remove what if, your consent. And what if they what if they keep on it? Well, as I tell all of my clients, you know, they're going to try to find every way under the world to say that they never got this letter. So you fax it. You keep a copy of the fax confirmation or you send it by registered mail. You keep a copy of that. The next time you call, you say two things. First off, by the way, I am recording this call mm-hmm. and I encourage people to do that with collection agents. They are recording your call. So why not do the same thing? And just letting them know I'm documenting every contact that you're making after I've sent you this letter. 
better. Usually you won't get too many calls after that. And if you did, if you got more than a couple calls, that's when you phone up Consumer Protection BC and they will take action to enforce this. Okay. And when you say I'm recording this call, you don't actually have to be recording the call. You, you just tell them. Yeah, they don't right. know that. Okay, good. Yeah. I just want to make sure because I don't want somebody to go, oh, I can't do that. I don't know how to record a call. Yeah. You know, if, if you had your iPhone, you could do it with a, with a voice memo, but let's not get everyone into being no, nefarious no. here. But yeah. it generally, it just gets people to know that, hey, you're somebody that knows their legal rights and they're not respecting a part of the law right now by them calling you. So you're saying, by the way, I'm making a record of what you're doing of not respecting the law. And usually that gets people to dance pretty smartly. Sure. And uh, and hang up or whatever it is they need to do next. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just send me a letter. You know what? I'm going to look at everything you have to say here. But the way I do business is when it's written down on a page, I don't deal with people calling me on the phone. That's everybody's right in BC with regards to debt. Fair enough. And you say in BC, is it different across the country in different provinces? Yeah, I'm it only is. aware that BC has this type of a consent. Um, oh, I'm not aware. I'm from Ontario originally. I know collection agencies, yeah, they would call morning, noon, and night, and I wasn't aware of how to stop them. Okay, fair enough. Now, access your credit report for free. Mm-hmm. There's a whole bunch of ways to get your credit report these days, right? There's yeah. apps, there's all kinds of things, mm-hmm. kinds of ways to do it. But you can do it and it won't cost you a thing. Yeah, so definitely there's a bunch of online businesses where you can go and some of them are free, but nothing's really free in this world as we learned with you know Facebook and data and everything. Right. If something's free, <laughs> you are the product. So imagine what you're giving up when you give somebody access to give you your free credit report. Yes. Um, but there are a few places you can do it online, but you generally get a very limited credit report and you get a credit score, which is basically fictional because a lot of lenders use their own algorithms to basically get their own credit score. So I don't find there's a whole lot of value in those. But if you want want your long form credit report, the one that runs, you know, 10 pages plus usually includes your past addresses, your past accounts. Um, You can go online, you can pay 20 or $30 to each of the credit bureaus to get it instantly. Or they won't make this easy for you to find, but we've got the form on our website. You can send in a one page form with a copy of your ID front and back, and they will send you your long form credit report at least once a year uh, at no charge to you. Okay, and I want to add that you say it's really important Mm -hmm. to know what it is that's out there because often it's not accurate. Yeah, almost always there's something that needs to be cleaned up, whether it's a weird address, a weird account, something not reporting correctly, and the time to clear it up is not when you're sitting in the mortgage broker's office or at the car dealership or something and they're saying, oh, we'd love to approve you, but there's this, this, this on your credit, which is going to take some time to clear up. So do you do it once once a year or twice a year? Once Once a year, I think, is great. Uh, yeah. you know, pick a certain time of the year, whether it's spring cleaning or, or something right. like that, and just send away for it. It'll come back in a couple weeks. And generally, it's pretty intuitive and easy to read. There's a lot of jargon there, but you'll see every account, you'll see a certain status. Um, and most of them have a little bit of a legend at the end that says, you know, R1 means this. R1 is usually you're paying everything on time. Right. You know, R7 is you're in a consumer proposal or something like that. So it shouldn't be too tough for you to figure out how to read it. And then you'll know if there's some crazy thing like a Discover card or an Amex or something. You've just never had that account, well, then you basically send an inquiry to the credit bureau and get them to clean that up. Good. Okay. And the fourth one, government debt forgiveness. Now, you talked about that government's you know, if you owe money to the government, mm-hmm. it's, there's no statute of limitations yeah. on that. Yeah, there's no waiting them out. No, 
Mm-hmm. You can't do that. So what? So what's this one for? Yeah. So this is to say that there is hope. You can make a deal <laughs> with the government. Um, a lot of the time, we get our news from down south in the U.S., where if you owe income taxes or student loans, you go through a bankruptcy or their equivalent of a proposal, and they come out the other side still owing everything to the government. It doesn't solve the problem. Right. In Canada, government debt is treated the same as every other debt. So if you do a consumer proposal, which we talk about a lot on the show, it's a great option. Usually, you offer to pay back about a third, maybe a half. Of the debt, you pay no interest, no additional charges, and nobody can bother you while you're making those payments. And at the end of the proposal, if you've even paid off just a third or half of the debt, the entire debt is discharged. The entire debt goes away. Okay, and and if I file bankruptcy mm-hmm. instead of the consumer proposal, same situation? Exactly. I was just going to go there. Oh, exactly good. that, Elaine. So both remedies, a consumer proposal and a bankruptcy, there are different means of getting to the same end, which yeah. is you can deal with government debt, you can turn things around. Yeah, and if you don't know what a consumer proposal is, just stay tuned because we're for sure going to be talking about it uh, in the in the show. Excellent. So mm-hmm. listen, if any of this information is resonating with you, and if you'd like more information, I know your website is awesome. First of all, I'll give you the address at sands-trustee.com. Mm-hmm. You cover so much good information on that website. Yeah, there's tons of frequently asked questions. Um, I'm really proud of a lot of our YouTube stuff. So if you go on our YouTube channel or even on our website, there's a ton of YouTube videos you can click through. We've got animated videos. We've got some client case studies of people in their own words telling their journey about going through being in debt, having us help them and how their life is better off in the future. And we even have a a couple of seconds to include, if you've got a question, if you've got Mm -hmm. something that you'd really like us to talk about on the show, how does somebody do that? Yeah, if they just send an email to info, I-N-F-O, at sans, S-A-N-D-S, hyphen trustee, T-R-U-S-T-E-E, just send to info at sans-trustee.com. It'll come directly to me and Elaine will talk about it on a future show. State your question, state why it is, and you're good to go. So we'll be able to cover it. Uh, you're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So we talk a lot about uh, consumer proposals and bankruptcy, and bankruptcy is always a bit of a scarier word because mm-hmm. it's been around for a long time and it means all kinds of things or it has a lot of uh, emotions attached Absolutely, to it. Yeah. So so this segment's called Five Things You Didn't Know About Bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. Well, interesting. I'm looking forward to hearing what this segment's all about. Yeah. What are they? Well, it, it's funny because a lot of people, when they come into my office, they've already self-diagnosed and they said, you know, don't even talk to me about bankruptcy. I know what that's all about. Someone comes to my ah. house, they, they tear everything out, they, you know, they tell all my neighbors, they put me in the newspaper. I don't want any sort of that. I lose my house, my clothes, my car. Exactly. I have to move. Yeah. yeah. Or if I go bankrupt, I'll never get credit again. And, you yeah. know, usually my response to that is with a little bit of a half smile. I'm like, okay, are you asking me or telling me? Yeah. Because I'm going to tell you a bunch of things that are at odds here. And, you know, essentially you're going to have to decide who you believe. Yeah. Uh, but there's so much misinformation that's out there. So I thought today, let's talk about five things you might not know about bankruptcy. Some of them aren't myths or just, you know, little arcane points, but I think it'll help our listeners really understand 
understand the remedy of bankruptcy is typically not what you think. There's a whole lot more positivity. Um, you know, I've heard someone say about a trustee, you know, similar to an anesthesiologist, you could look at an anesthesiologist as the person that puts you to sleep or the person that wakes you back up and puts you back to life. Hmm. I think a trustee is similar to that. <laughs> We're not the person that puts you, you know, um, you know, in the coffin, so to speak. We're the right. person that helps you rebuild, that helps you to start again with no debt and have a greater tomorrow. Well, that's very good. I'm impressed. Oh, well. <laughs> so the first one, a $1,000 minimum. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Well, to go bankrupt, you only have to owe $1,000. So oh. that usually surprises people because they think there's a much higher bar to access the insolvency system, but For it sure. really is just $1,000. Okay. It's kind of an archaic thing. It came back from, you know, most bankruptcy legislation in Canada it was written around the Great Depression. At that point, you can imagine $1,000 was a was very it? significant debt. Huge amount of money. And we have nobody these days that files bankruptcy for $1,000, but I do have individuals that'll do consumer proposals, you know, $5,000 or $8,000 or $10,000, something like that. So if somebody thinks they've got to be so far gone, they've got to owe fifty dollars or $100,000 or something like that before a trustee will even talk to them, the answer is no. Under the law, you could have access to the insolvency system if you owed more than $1,000 and were not able to pay it. Oh, that is interesting. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing the show for a while. <laughs> yeah. It, well, and, and in some cases, it's so interesting because it's the individual's perspective. You know, some people could have $75,000 of debt and be actually able to manage it okay. They've got, you know, they're psychologically fine. They've got good cash flow. Conversely, somebody could have $5,000 of debt and it might be consuming their life and they all they're doing is paying minimums. They know they're never getting out of debt. Both of those people could need help. That's very interesting. So there's no income cap. Mm-hmm. on that. Yeah. So when people come in and they say, well, I've heard in bankruptcy, you can only make a certain amount of money or oh, how much can okay. I actually make? And well, the answer is it's unlimited. The whole point of a bankruptcy is to give you the ability to earn income so that you're able to make some repayment on your debts or at the very least pay the cost of the administration to go through. So whether you're earning $500 a month or $5,000 a month, bankruptcy is definitely an option for somebody. Um, the way a bankruptcy payment is calculated is it's based on ability to pay. So we've talked a lot that if someone is in bankruptcy, they either fall into a category of being low income. And for a single person, that's about the $2,000 a month of income. So if Mm -hmm. they're earning below that, they're considered low income, or they're considered not low income if they earn above that. And if somebody is low income, they pay a minimum amount in a bankruptcy over a nine-month period. And if they're not low income, they pay an amount based on their income over a year plus nine months. Okay. So there's a scenario for bankruptcy that would fit basically any income characteristic. Now, it's very rare for somebody earning, you know, $5,000, $7,000 a month to file a bankruptcy because very often they're able to do a consumer proposal. And any of our listeners will know a consumer proposal is an alternative to bankruptcy. You restructure the debt, you pay off usually a third to a half, no interest charges, and everyone's happy by the end of it. Um, but strictly speaking, if someone had, you know, very significant amounts of debt, sometimes over a million dollars of debt, no matter what their income is, trying to offer a half or a third of such a big number wouldn't be possible. Um, that person could still be eligible for bankruptcy regardless of their monthly income levels. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. What about your credit? I mm-hmm. mean, that is that's got to be a fear of people. I mean, it makes sense to me that you wouldn't then who who's ever going to take um, you know, a bit of a risk on you again. Right. 
And I understand that from a headline level, and that's when people come in, they say, I know if I go bankrupt, I'll never get credit again. And I say, well, let's unpack that a little bit. So how many people in Canada last year do you think went bankrupt or did a consumer proposal? And most people had no idea. And I say, well, it's between 100 and 120,000 people every year. Can you imagine if the whole financial sector wrote off 100 to 120,000 individuals every year? and said, Forever. Forever, said we're never going to do business with them again. We're never going to make a dollar of interest. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? Right. It's over a period of 20 years, what's that, 2 million people? Yeah. What's that, a pretty big proportion of the adult population in Canada? Yeah. So it's a complete myth that the financial institute institutions will not do business with you again. What's going to happen is obviously they're going to be a bit gun shy at first. So if you've been into bankruptcy, you had $25,000 of debt and a bunch of credit cards, the day that you're discharged from that bankruptcy, don't expect that you're going to get approved from the same credit that you had before. Sure. You've obviously just came through a proceeding where you've scrubbed off the debt, but the impact of that is going to last for a few years after. So for someone who's never been bankrupt before, the bankruptcy is going to purge from their credit. So it'll be like it never happened six years after it's finished. So it doesn't mean they're untouchable for six years, but definitely after those six years, if someone pulls a credit report, they won't even see that a bankruptcy has been filed. But realistically, if someone's got reasonable income, they're paying all their bills on time, the cell phone bills, the hydro, everything counts every month. It's usually a two to three year period where the person is reestablishing credit. And after that, they could get a mortgage. See, that's significant, two to three years, right? A lot less than what you would think. And I work through the scenario with individuals and say, okay, let's keep doing what you're doing and let's see how quickly you'll get this debt paid off and how quickly you can save a down payment and how quickly you'll be able to get that mortgage that you want. And then let's do another scenario. If, if we go through a bankruptcy or a proposal, we write off all the debt, you start saving money while you're rebuilding your credit. In every scenario I've ever looked at, that person is so much better off to get rid of the debt, to take the hit on their credit, but start saving the money and rebuild their credit. It's a much better plan. Excellent. What about assets if you go into bankruptcy? Yeah, a lot of people think you go into bankruptcy, you lose everything. Um, almost everybody keeps all of their assets while they go through bankruptcy. See, and that's so important to yeah. know because it's it's movies, it's television shows, it's books, it's yeah. all of that that you know the person's just wiped out and that's it. They're yep. they're you know they're they're walking through town with a little knapsack on their back with nothing in it. Exactly, and that's you know the headline understanding of bankruptcy is you lose everything, but there's provincial legislation that says okay, if the bankruptcy act says you got to give everything to the trustee. The province of BC says, well, hold on, you get to keep a vehicle. You get to keep your tools of the trade. You get to keep your RRSPs, mm-hmm. which most people don't know. You get to keep all of your clothing, anything you need for medical purposes. You get to keep all your household furniture, everything yes. that's in your apartment or your house. I'm not showing up to inventory or to take it out. You get to keep all of that stuff. So, you know, yeah, if you've got the speedboat or the yacht and you got a bunch of debts, sorry, that might have to get sold. But the vast majority of people, when they come to see a trustee, they've sold anything that could reasonably be used to pay their debts. Um, and the other assets that they have, they're typically able to retain either through a bankruptcy or a proposal proceeding. Yeah, they don't want you out on the street. No, no. There's certain base level of, of, you know, even dignity as a Canadian, as an individual. You know, if you think about someone coming and inventorying your assets, making it a public record, um, you know, it's it's not an experience people would want to go through. Okay. So what's the last one? It's called Yes, It Covers. Yeah. So a lot of the times I'll be sitting down with somebody and we'll go through everything about their debts and then they'll say, oh, I've also got this debt, but I know you guys can't help with that. I'm like, okay, tell me more. What, what do we have here? Um, so some people assume that bankruptcy doesn't cover debts with Canada Revenue Agency. It absolutely does. Tax debt has no special status um, in bankruptcy legislation. If you do a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal, your tax debt can be dealt with. 
Um, student loans is another one, uh, where as long as it's been more than five to seven years since you've been a student, so you can't graduate and the next day decide to get rid of the student loan, you have to make a good faith effort to work and earn income. But after it's been the five to seven years, you can deal with a student loan as well. Um, MSP debt. So again, it's a government debt. We can deal with that. And even debt where you might feel incredibly guilty that you incurred it, like maybe there's a gambling addiction or some speculation, that type of debt can still be dealt with in a bankruptcy as long as you've shown you've taken the steps to deal with the underlying issue. And see, that's why it's so important to go see someone like Blair, a licensed insolvency trustee, because they'll actually work with you and help you figure that out and sort of allay all those fears, uh, crazy fears, yeah, when it comes right down to it, there's right? There's almost no Nobody I've met where their understanding is any worse than, than what it actually is. So in many cases, their understanding is so far worse, and I'm able to bring them back to something that's really reasonable, and it's a good option for them. Excellent. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scullin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.